From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. Though L.A. County residents are still being told to stay home, it's clear larger numbers are venturing out. Traffic is increasing, sidewalks are seeing more pedestrians, and public spaces are drawing crowds. We'll talk with our physician expert about the likely effects in COVID-19 cases. For those of us fortunate enough to still be working, our jobs are at least somewhat different, sometimes significantly different. And for essential employees, they're out dealing with the public in a challenging environment. For those working from home, some can't wait to get back to the office. Others would love to stay at home forever. We'll hear the reasons why on this morning's Air Talk. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us on this Monday. I hope you had a good weekend and were able to keep yourself, your family members safe, but still have a good time. Maybe relax a little bit. If you're someone who's fortunate enough to still have a job, still, I'm sure, appreciate those weekends. And if you're someone who is trying to find a job in this sort of an economy without jobs being available, Certainly our thoughts go out to you during this very, very difficult time. Later this hour, we open up the phones to hear from listeners who are employed and are working from home. Would you like to see this continue even after it's safe to return to the office? Have you gotten accustomed to working at home and kind of like the routine or not? What is it that you miss? Why do you think your job isn't ideally suited to continue working at home? Or why do you think you're not ideally suited to continue from a home office? And then next hour, we'll talk to those who are employed but going out into the world, people who are doing essential or certainly needed work. Do you have enough protective equipment in the job you're doing? Has your employer done a good job of keeping people separated in the workplace or not? What sort of recourse do you have if they haven't? And we'll talk about how your job has changed if you're someone doing essential work out in the world. That's coming up next hour here on Air Talk on KPECC. We begin with our daily COVID-19 update. Joining us from UCLA, Director of the University's Center for Public Health and Disasters. He's also Professor of Medicine and Public Health at the UCLA School of Medicine, Dr. David Eisenman. Dr. Eisenman, welcome back. Oh, thank you. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. I hope you you had a good weekend. Uh, Let's begin first with this um, positive early report we just heard on NPR News. Uh, The company Moderna saying that its early phase trial on eight subjects shows that their immune system responded to um, their experimental vaccine in the same way that people who've recovered from COVID-19's immune system responds. Uh, How much weight should we give this early report? Well, so you're right. The study was a positive um, early uh, announcement of results, so interim results from their phase one trial. trial. And a a phase one trial is done, there there are three major phases, phase one, phase two, and phase three. And phase one is really meant to test for safety of the vaccine. Um, 
So they give two doses. In this case, they gave two doses to participants, 45 participants, age 18 to 15, uh, 55. And they give it over the two doses over, I think, two, a month's time. And they check to see if it's safe and well tolerated. And they're really looking for all sorts of adverse events. Um, and that's the, really the major, what they call the primary endpoint, is whether, is whether it's safe, whether a two-dose vaccination is safe. And it was, it turned out, um, in these 45 people, uh, the participants really only developed mild to moderate uh, uh, side effects at the site of the injection. So they got uh, a redness in the arm, a little soreness in the arm at the injection site. But things that, you know, people are used to experiencing usually when they, sometimes when they get vaccinations. Now, there is a group, a smaller group that they looked at um, what's called a secondary endpoint uh, to see if they developed antibodies to the vaccine. Again, this is not the main purpose of the phase one trial, but they did show that they developed antibodies and that they did it in what's called a dose dependent way so that the more of the vaccine dose they got, the more antibody they, they developed. And that some of these antibodies are what's called neutralizing antibodies, which in other uh, situations, probably in COVID-19 also, are particularly important in uh, stopping the infection. So it's positive. Uh, there are multiple phases remaining. The next one, I understand, will involve 600 people. And the company says that it's accelerating the, the testing timeline. Is that something that you think can be done safely and providing still a high degree of accuracy? Well, I think that uh, this is all going as planned. I mean, it's going quickly, which is what was planned. They do have the platform, the ability to accelerate the process. We still need to make sure that, number one, it's safe. That's still, you know, we need to understand long-term safety of these vaccines. And of course, we need to know that the antibodies are effective. Just because you're producing antibodies doesn't mean you're producing antibodies that are effective against the virus. And so those are the next stages, the stage two and stage three, to look at uh, stage three in particular, whether it's effective. And lastly, we'll want to know if the antibodies last, because uh, if the antibodies that one produces go away in a few months after the injection, then it's not going to be very effective. We're talking with UCLA's Dr. David Eisenman. If you have questions for him about COVID-19, we're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. Separate from this trial, there's been talk about coming up with an ethical framework to do testing of healthy young individuals by exposing them to COVID-19 um, if they've, they've tried uh, different vaccines to see what the immune response is and do they become ill with it. But obviously, you need ethical guidelines if you're even going to do a study like that, a, a risk study. Um, so my question for you is, do you think it would be possible with a vaccine under development like this to do a trial like that ethically? 
Well, this is a question that we're going to be dealing with, and the ethicists are already starting to discuss. There's a lot of discussion among epidemiologists and ethicists and policymakers around other forms of doing trials. So there's a topic, there's a, a type of trial that's being um, discussed called a human challenge trial, which will allow uh, for a more rapid test of efficacy and safety um, circulating uh, in, in a way that allows you to, to adjust the trial as you get new information. And it's being particularly recommended uh, and pushed by an epidemiologist who's quite well regarded at Harvard named Mark Lipsitch. Uh, and so it is getting discussed. Um, we are in a critical situation here. The uh, concern is that it could take many years to get us to a vaccine. Of course, the other, on the other hand, there is the concern that if we don't do these trials right, we will end up... Uh, finding out late that there are safety issues. And I'm concerned about that because we do have a very strong and growing anti-vaccination movement in this country. And we don't want to give more fuel to the fire and to their cause. So I think we have to really maintain the trust of the population. And it's, a, it's an interesting conversation, but a delicate time to be um, trying new things. Dr. Eisenman, uh, do you know off the top of your head what the quickest development of a vaccine has been historically? Oh, well, yes, it's been several years. Now, top, now, top of my head, which vaccine that was, I've kind of forgotten. But uh, in the past, it took three or four years to get a vaccine. So no now, one's course, done it in 18 months. No one's ever done it in 18 months, which is why this is really suitably called, you know, Project Warp Speed, I think the president has called it. Uh, this really is kind of the Manhattan Project of vaccination. We're talking with Dr. David Eisenman, UCLA, where he directs the University's Center for Public Health and Disasters. He's professor of medicine and public health. He's also associate natural scientist at RAND, 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. Dr. Eisenman, no softball questions from listeners here. Keith, in the Fairfax district, wonders about children going back to school. And that a tough one, of course, because for many kids, they fall further and further behind in doing their studies from home. But you've also got the issue of how to protect kids, their families, and school staff members. Dr. Eisenman? Yeah, it, the question of um, children going back to school really has to do with the question of are children susceptible to infection and do children spread it to other children and to adults? And, you know, actually the studies are, there are several studies now showing that children may be less susceptible to ever getting the infection and less likely to be spreading it to adults. Uh, looking at, for instance, the public health uh, page of Netherlands, which I just happened to be looking at last night, the English in the English version of it, they feel very strongly that the evidence shows that children are not easily infected and do not spread it among adults. And for that reason, they're bringing um, primary schools, primary schools 
back. And this is happening in other countries, too. And there was actually a good article over the weekend on Wired magazine sort of looking at bringing all the studies together that um, support the idea that children may not be uh, the, uh, the mode of tra- a major mode of transi- transmission here. Now, I, mean, I think we need to look at all the studies, both positive and negative, and I'd like to see the U.S. studies included in these kinds of assessments, but it's very possible, uh, at least in other countries, to bring primary school children back, it seems. All right. We're talking with Dr. David Eisenman of UCLA. Uh, Fiona Ng, our uh, senior producer, found on National Geographic the mumps vaccine, according to National Geographic, considered the fastest development ever of a vaccine. Four years. Four years. Oh, my goodness. Uh, All right. Does that sound about right to you, Dr. Eisenman? Yes, I was going I said 3 to 4 years and I was going to guess measles or mumps, but I don't usually guess on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's what we have producers for. 866-893-KPECC to to actually give us uh, the word. Um, Winston in Long Beach uh, says, uh, interested in your opinion about hydroxychloroquine and zinc as treatments for the virus. And we, of course, have had some studies uh, about hydrochloroquine. I am dubious about anything to do with hydroxychloroquine. There are so many studies now that have come out that are strong studies that have shown uh, no benefit and have shown uh, higher levels of adverse reactions. You know, hydroxychloroquine has been used for a long time at lower doses for other diseases, uh, rheumatologic diseases, but at lower doses. And the doses that we... um, have needed to use or were trying to use in COVID-19 are much higher and they're toxic to the heart. So um, the combination with zinc, I know that that has been discussed and studied. I don't know the results specifically on that combination, but I think with something like this where it's shown to be toxic at the needed therapeutic doses, we have to do very careful studies before we use it. I, for one, I for one would not want it used on me if I were to get sick with it. All right. On the other hand, remdesivir has shown some positive results. Yes, it's shown, I would say, moderate results. It reduced the length of stay in um, ICU patients, as I, understand, as I recall, from you know several days, uh, by four or five days. And that's not unimportant because, you know, if we're trying to increase hospital capacity, the the sooner we can get patients out of an ICU and home, the more capacity we have. But, you know, it's not something that doctors think of as um, a major therapeutic. You know, it's not curing the illness. Um, And frankly, there are some concerns because while we've heard this announced in the press, we still haven't seen the peer-reviewed paper in the science journals about remdesivir. So, you know, we're using it. Um, we're using it as part of investigation trials uh, at the major hospitals. Uh, we still need to learn more about how valuable it is. 
All right. Canoga Rich writes on the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. As a high school teacher, I'm very concerned about my own health as well as that of my students. I often have nearly 40 students in class, many of whom come to school sick. I'm not willing to go back into the Petri dish unless I know the risk to me is low. How will we really know when to reopen. And I guess this gets back to the point that you were raising, Dr. Eisenman, that, you know, maybe it is the younger kids that go back. But but then the problem with that is, you know, they're on top of each other, jostling around. You, you know, it's much harder to keep them apart than it is high school students. That's right. But if, in fact, children don't get easily infected with it, or if they get it, they get a mild version and they don't spread it, then it's less of a concern. Now you can also add precautions if that's so if that's true, so that you just make it even safer. You can do um we're seeing sort of creative approaches to physical distancing in the classroom. Uh we can of course monitor schools and neighborhoods and if there's an outbreak, close them down. So we could add all kinds of public health measures on top of it if, in fact, kids aren't major transmitters of the disease. If they're not major transmitters of the disease, it should be less worrisome to go back into a classroom with it. We're talking with Dr. David Eisenman, UCLA professor of medicine and public health. He directs the university's Center for Public Health and Disasters. Coming up, we'll talk with him about why, despite California's stay-at-home order now more than two months in effect, we haven't seen a significant decrease in COVID-19 cases. We keep kind of limping along on the plateau. What's the reason for that? And this at the same time, more and more people seem to be coming out into the world. We'll be back in one minute on Air Talk. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle with UCLA Dr. David Eisenman. We're taking your calls at 866-893-KPCC or the Air Talk page, kpcc.org. Dr. Eisenman, we're now more than two months into the stay-at-home order for most of the state of California. Um, We have not seen an explosion in COVID-19 cases that's overwhelmed hospital capacity. In fact, uh, the um, uh, Navy ship um, already left San Pedro, which provided excess capacity for non-COVID-19 patients. Uh, haven't had to use the um, annex facilities, uh, places like convention centers to take additional patients. But we're not seeing the kind of decline after the plateau that we were told was likely from public health officials. Why do you think that's the case? It is concerning, Larry. You know, uh, California, we did everything right, it seemed, in the beginning. We were closing our businesses uh, in late February up up in the Bay Area, the tech businesses down here, uh, the movie industry and, and other businesses were closing in early March. Our governor uh, and the mayor Garcetti and the mayors across the, uh, you know, in San Francisco, too, were really enacting uh, lockdown and physical distancing much earlier than, for instance, uh, New York. And we really looked like we were doing the right public health response. The 
And in some ways we have. We only had 3,000 deaths in a population of 39 million, which every one of those deaths is terrible, but we could have had a lot more uh, if we had not done those physical distancing measures so early. But still we have these kinds of, the plateau, we've, we, we have not turned the curve down. We've plateaued the curve. And we're still seeing up to 70 new deaths a day. And this has just been continuing now for over a week. And it's concerning. And the best, you know, the sort of the biological answer is that the term that listeners have learned over the course of this pandemic, which is the R naught, the R zero, uh, has not gotten down below one. We're still at the point where uh, when a person gets COVID, they're transmitting it to one or more people. So um, we are not, you know, crushing the curve. We're not getting the R naught below one. When you get below one, then when one person gets COVID-19, they over an average number of people give it to less than one person. Um, so why is that? I don't know. I guess the best reason we can say is that since lockdown was supposed to impose physical distancing, that our physical that people aren't doing the physical distancing we'd hope they do. And there was a CDC paper that looked at physical distancing uh, across uh, several states, uh, across California. Uh, it showed that 50% of individuals were still leaving their homes in March and April. So the lockdown was really not being taken seriously enough, it seems, to get that R naught down. And we're still having cases. And the value of this lockdown may be lost because we were supposed to use this time to get the rest of our public health apparatus up and running so that we could come out and start to reemerge. And we just don't have that either. Uh, EGW writes on the page, follow the science. States that have reopened have fallen cases. It's time to check the media claim Georgia would wreck the progress that we've made. Um, so, we, you know, if this is all about social distancing, we would expect to see um, significant increases in cases in those states where people are coming out more. Yes. And I, I know Georgia has been discussed a lot this weekend. I I and lots of others have concerns about Georgia. First of all, it's too early to say anything. We expect the, de the delay to be, you know, three weeks between the time we see reliable uh, data, uh, between the time that physical distancing rules go down and um, uh, reliable data of mortality starts to emerge. There's also been concerns about the data quality in some states. Uh, Georgia was caught with... Um, some very weird data where they did graphs of um, deaths and they put days in random order in order to make it look like it was descending, um, which is a very odd thing to do. And they, they took that down. Um, other states have had uh, their testing re results are mixing up uh, the diagnostic test with the serology test, um, which tells you very different information. So we really need to see this data a few weeks out, and we really need to see the data in very clear 
clean and transparent form. I, I understand that it would take three weeks or more to, to really get a handle on fatalities, but wouldn't you start to see within a week or so hospitals start to get um, a surge of patients coming in from community spread? You'll start to see it within one to two weeks. You know, the incubation period, the, the median incubation period is five days between time you're exposed and the time you're, you develop symptoms. So, you know, they then give it a, a couple of days for somebody to um, get a test and get a test result. That's another four or five days. And then to get hospitalized, maybe a couple more days. So I give it more like two weeks before we see hospitalizations. Okay. And if you don't see that in the states that have uh, done more opening than California, would that be an indicator to you that California should open up more? Or or do you think looking at the plateau uh, and the daily deaths associated with COVID-19, best not to do that? Well, I think there's a lot of data that goes into these decisions. I'm not part of those. I think we have to um, be opening up slowly. The economic fallout is terrible in Los Angeles with 25% of people losing their jobs. There's no doubt there's health harms to this. Um, I, I truly believe we need to open it up. I'd like to see much more testing than we're achieving in California and in Los Angeles. I'd like to see uh, contact tracing up um, and available, which we, we don't have yet. You know, we know how to stop this. Uh, we know how to stop transmission, which is isolation and quarantine. And we know how to, to deal with that, which is by doing testing in order to look at that. And I'd like to see all of those things in place better. My understanding is at this point, we have more tests than people getting tested, that there's actually a surplus of tests in Southern California. So if, if that is the case, then what who should be tested to take to start using that capacity? It, while that that may be true, we still it doesn't tell you the numbers how those numbers work. So that you might get sick and get tested, but it might be four days before you get the results, and that's still happening. So that in those four days, you don't know if you are sick, and a lot of people are spreading the disease during that delay. So while there were while the numbers show that we're getting tests per capita uh, improvement in that, there's still a real delay in how people get that information back and and use it to isolate and quarantine. Good thing. People I know have gotten tests have gotten their results within 48 hours. So uh, that might not be representative, but at least um, that's the, the, the people in my family that have been tested have gotten pretty mm-hmm. quick response. We're talking with Dr. David Eisenman, joining us from UCLA, where he directs the university's Center for Public Health and Disasters. He's professor of medicine and also associate natural scientist at RAND. If you have questions for him, we're at 866-893-KPECC. That's 866-893-5722. There's a lot of speculation, Dr. Eisenman, about why uh, Southern California, particularly Los Angeles County, has such a higher rate of COVID-19 exposure and fatalities than does Northern California. And uh, people talk about, well, tech jobs up there, more people can work from home and the like. But I also wonder about... um, uh, density and multi-generational families and things like that, if perhaps in Los Angeles County, we have more people going out into the workplace, 
coming back to a multi-generational household and that that's increased the risk. But one of the things that concerns me is it doesn't seem like we have any information at all. I haven't seen any study that looks at um, the the people, uh, the, the um, 3,240 people in California that have died from COVID-19, and that explains the circumstances. You know, were they working exposed in a retail environment? Did they get it from another family member? Did they? And why don't we have that kind of basic information so we can assess risk? Yeah, I mean, that information is really important so we can assess risk. And right now, a lot of the data that's publicly available through the Department of Public Health, for instance, is from the notification data that providers provide to the Department Department of Public Health when they have a case. So when a doctor sees a case of a COVID-19 patient, it's reportable. They have to report it on a form to the Department of Public Health. And if you look at the data fields that are collected, they're really pretty scant. So they, for instance, in occupation, they only ask for healthcare worker, teacher, first responder, or other. Now that other is a huge category, and that's where you start getting into the details of, of who are those how are people getting the disease? Are they getting it because they're transit drivers or because they're working in grocery stores? And those are the kinds of details that we want uh, in those forms, not just a, a miscellaneous other category that then never gets analyzed. And I don't understand why public health experts aren't working on this, because we know, for example, the percentage that are related to um, care facilities for older individuals. We know the cases that are coming from prisons. Uh, so with the institutional numbers we get, it's broken down according to age and race and ethnicity. But what would really be far more valuable, I would think, would be to understand where are the source, where, where are the avenues of risk. And I guess I just don't understand why that's not a priority, it seems, in public health. I think it is uh, very important. It is a priority in public health. Now, these kinds of forms, they need to be redone. I agree. There's always this balance that public health departments are walking, which is asking for a form that has too many details and doctors are not going to fill out versus getting the details that we really need. And also knowing which details you're going to need two months from now. So when they probably made this form, back in January, uh, they didn't know necessarily all the fields that they were going to want. So I think, you know, this does need to be redone. Some of your question can be answered with really good research, uh, but it's arduous research. It it's, takes a lot of time. It requires going into the records of all the people who died and uh, finding out really the kinds of information that's not available publicly about them. And then comparing them to other people who didn't die so you can see if those differences are meaningful differences. And that's more of a research project. And that takes time. And we should be seeing those results, but they're not available yet. I agree. Carolyn Upland asks about we hear about these rare cases where um, young people um, have uh, 
you know, serious reaction, what appears to be something related to the virus. Um, and then we hear that kids seem to be um, somewhat inured to it. So what's what's going, why do we think there are some kids that seem to have a very serious uh, response to it? So you can have both things. You can still, you can have that very few children get the disease and that most kids when they get disease get fairly mild versions of it. And at the same time, you can have this, what seems to still be a very rare but severe outcome, which is this um, multi-system kind of inflammatory outcome that looks a lot what's called, looks like what's called Kawasaki's disease. And, you know, they're still working on figuring out what are the features of it, um, what are the causes of it. We have 100 cases um, that have been reported in New York City, so we'll know more from those 100 cases. Uh, it's, it's still to be worked out what are the biological reasons why those children had this widespread inflammation uh, in their bodies. Eddie and Covina, uh, can you explain why some people who contract the virus are asymptomatics while other people have significant uh, symptoms? Uh, The short answer is no, we really don't know. This is, we have to remember that this is a novel coronavirus that a few months ago we knew so, we knew nothing about it. It didn't even, it wasn't even on our radar. Uh, So, we are going to learn things slowly over the months and years to come. And these kinds of very important but complex questions usually take you know, months and years to learn in new infectious diseases. So it's no surprise that in early May, for a disease that came out uh, in the United States in January, we don't know the answers to these kinds of questions yet. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Eisenman, for being with us today and sharing your expertise about COVID-19. And we look forward to talking with you in the future if you're willing. Thank you so much, sir. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Really appreciate it. UCLA Director of the University Center for Public Health and Disasters, Dr. David Eisenman, Professor of Medicine and Associate Natural Scientist at RAND. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Now, coming up in just over a minute, we open up the phones for those working at home, and I'd like to hear... If you'd like this to continue, once it's safe for you to return back to your work site, back to the office, are you looking forward to that? Or would you rather keep working from home like you are? And what are the reasons you're leaning one way or the other? 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Next hour on Air Talk, we'll talk with listeners who are doing essential work, going out into the world each day. And I'd like to hear how that experience has changed 
if you're working with the public, are you getting the kind of personal protective equipment that you need to do your job? Has that changed over time? What about physical distancing in the workplace, whether you work uh, in a facility which you don't interact with the public but need to distance from coworkers, or whether you're working in an environment where customers are right there? I want to hear what that experience is like. But right now, my focus is on those working from home, those not going out into the world and having to deal with things like enforcing um, uh, the edict that a person uh, cover his or her face while shopping. Those of you that are working from home, I'd like to hear whether this is something you'd like to continue. You've fallen for the idea of working at home and actually prefer it or not. And I'd like to hear the specific kind of work that you do. Why does it seem to be suited or not to working from home as you're doing now? 866-893-KPECC. Cam in Burbank. I understand you've been working at home for nine weeks. So how has that experience evolved over this two-month period? Yes. Good morning, Larry. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm a a real estate appraiser. Uh, I work for a bank. And uh, initially coming home, I came I came to work at home about a week earlier than the rest of my department did because my husband's a little bit older and I was just concerned about being there at sure. the office. So it was very hard at first and I still miss my friends. I miss my coworkers, just in an incidental running into people during the day and having a nice chance to chat. But over time, I've settled into it a lot better. Um, I've become more productive. And in fact, I just had a... Um, a town hall meeting with the CEO of our bank this morning, and they're they're looking at waiting until at least uh, later in the summer to even consider having any of us come back to work. Wow! And I have a feeling we may really end up just being permanent work at home people. And you're fine with that? I think I am. I'm getting to the point where I am fine with it. There are adjustments for sure, but um, you know, there's something nice about being home with my dogs and my husband. I can get out into my garden and take a little break and uh, just work on my own schedule. So, yeah, I, I think I am becoming more accepting of the concept. How, how long a commute did you have before? Just about 15 minutes from Burbank to Pasadena. So oh, not bad. Yeah, that's not a big issue. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like you're, you're, you're saving a lot of time, but you, you like this experience. Cam, thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. And so you can do the appraising from home. You don't feel it's gotten in the way of the quality of your work. No, not at all. All right. And I'm reviewing other people's appraisals, so I don't need... Who are on site, yeah. Okay. Cam, I appreciate it. 866-893-KPECC or the Air Talk page, kpecc.org. Uh, Sabrina, our news apprentice, said, I have a friend who works at uh, Twitter and said in the San Francisco area, because so many of the tech companies are letting their employees work from home indefinitely, or in the case of Twitter, permanently if they want, a lot of them are just moving back home because it's so expensive to live in San Francisco. And uh, Sabrina's friend said it's going to shrink her dating pool. (laughs) I can understand. All right, 866-893-KPCC. And because a lot of them are young, I assume when talking about moving back home, I mean, I think that means mom and dad. I wonder how they feel about that. 866-893-KPCC. Noemi, in Koreatown, I understand you're a a paralegal. Um, Is it working just as well to work from home? Hi, good morning. Um, Yeah, actually it is. We were kind of uh, 
already set up to work remotely. So it just kind of so happened that, you know, working from home, I, at least with the filing and paperwork and everything has worked just fine. Um, but it's been kind of, I feel a little bit draining emotionally just because um, when we work in the office, we see each other, we, we, you know, we work with the attorneys, we can kind of like talk about what's going on with the cases. And because we do work with like medical malpractice and elder abuse clients, we have noticed some of our clients be affected by COVID. And so that's taken a little bit of an emotional toll on me. And I, I kind of miss that camaraderie of being in the office and, and talking with others about it. Um, so I do hope that, you know, this, uh, we hopefully can go back to it the way that it is. Cause I kind of miss just being in the office and suiting up and, yeah. and seeing everybody in the office. You know, it's funny, Noemi, I, I have a friend who works for uh, a public agency and she was saying one of the things that she likes about working from home is the avoidance of office politics, that she didn't realize how much of her time was spent dealing with the sort of um, political issues in the office, so to speak. Um, so I don't know whether that applies uh, with the firm that you work for. But um, for some people, you know, the, for some people, there's the positive of the social part of it, but there also can be some negatives and, and that that can eat up time um, and and also affect um, the um, efficiency of, of the person working. Noemi, thank you so much. 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Patricia in Pasadena, I understand you're a professor. How is it working with you teaching online? I am loving it. Now, I don't call it online. I call it remote teaching because it's all synchronous. When I'm online with the students, the students are online with me. So it's all face-to-face over Zoom. But I am loving this. You know, some professors like me require a lot of quiet time to write, to research, to read. And um, that's what I have. And I heard someone say they can go out into their garden. I can go into my garden in between calls, advisements. It is, I, right, right now, when I finish talking to you, I'm going to go in the front porch, look at my beautiful mountains, and uh, do some research. I love it. You, you, you sound so at peace with this setup, but I have to ask, how are your students taking to it? Well, my students and I, my students love me and I love my students. So for the most part, they're happy with it. Now, I would say that if you don't have an initial relationship with your students, this might be difficult. But we know each other and uh, when we we check in on our cats and dogs. So they right now are fine. And many of them thought they would never be online, came to our university, so they wouldn't have to be (laughs) online. But... um, I've not heard any huge complaint. The biggest complaint is I teach teachers, and so some of them are trying to teach and be in school and have families that, yeah. that they're having to teach and you know do all the family things. That's their issue. But having the relationship with uh, their instructors that they love or that they respect uh, on an, in an online environment seems not to be an issue. It seems to be fine. Patricia, just quickly before I let you go, do you have a, a designated office in your home or have you created one from a dining room table or something like that? Uh, the living room is my designated office and no one would like to be in it. 
It, it does not look anything like my office. All right. It is a total mess. All right. But so you, you've 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 created a space, though, uh, to do it. Uh, Patricia, I appreciate it so much. We wish you all the best. We're taking listener calls and finding out what you think about working from home. Now that we're several weeks into this, for those who are working at home, you looking forward to going back to the office or your place of work? Or do you feel like, no, this is pretty good. And I'd like to hear the type of work you're doing, why you think it is or is not on a long-term basis advantageous to work from home. 866-893-KPCC or the Air Talk page, kpcc.org, back in 60 seconds. Right now, we're talking with those able to work from home, whether you want to keep doing it once we're through the COVID-19 pandemic uh, or whether you want to go back to the office. Next hour, we talk with those who aren't able to work from home and haven't been throughout the course of this because they're doing essential work and meeting the public or working at a workplace where you're surrounded by co-workers is required. We'll find out how those work environments have evolved, whether you feel safe doing that kind of work, and also what sort of additional responsibilities you've been forced to take on. For example, you know, there have been employees at supermarkets and other retail establishments who've had to become the enforcers of people uh, you know, not wearing face coverings or not keeping their distance from other people. This is not something if you're working in a supermarket market you likely signed up for having to be the enforcer of uh, the conduct of customers. So we'll talk uh, with uh, folks about who are doing that kind of work next hour. 866-893-KPECC or the Airtalk page, kpcc.org. Our producer, Lindsay, said, if I were to do this permanently, I'd need to get a desk set up or office space. Working at the kitchen table's getting old and isn't super comfortable. I've had uh, some abnormal wrist and back aches. Lindsay, I'm sorry to hear that. You've been suffering in silence. That's <laughs> Lindsay working from home, uh, along with our Air Talk producers, Natalie and Matt, as well, working from home. 866-893-KPECC or the Air Talk page, kpecc.org. Renee says, I work for a law, a law firm, been working from home since mid-March. It's rather traumatic at first, but got used to it after a week or two. Our office has gradually been going paperless, means more and more reliance on digital documents, etc. And um, we've all adjusted in a fantastic way. We're rolling right along quite nicely. I'm beginning to wonder if we will ever go back. That's Renee. Aaron in Hollywood. So what do you think about working from home? Could could you be okay with this permanently or not? I found it challenging, frankly, because at uh, very work-intensive jobs and jobs where you struggle with work-life balance, the work-life balance has been totally erased. And the expectation now is that you're available not just during business hours for a call or an email or a Zoom, but even beyond traditional business hours. There's just no work-life distinction anymore at all in my work. Yeah. And I can understand that. Um, I'm someone who there is no distinction. I'm, I'm, I'm working all the time. I'm always looking for segments for the program. And I know what you and and I think there's some people sort of wired to be okay with that, and other people not, because it 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 begins 
um, affecting relationships and the ability to de-stress. And all. It sounds like, Aaron, for you, this is, this is really negative. Is there any way that you can contain your work at home, or have you tried different things to do that? I think it's about saying no and knowing when to step away. But I also think that the culture of working from home and the norms around it are going to evolve. And I've even seen them evolve over the last few months of the stay-at-home order. I know the first month of stay-at-home where I work at a nonprofit, I didn't have a day off. But beginning about two or three weeks ago, I think everyone from management up on down got really burned out and by the weekend uh, things had slowed down a bit. So I think it's going to be a, a, an evolving culture. All right. Aaron, good to hear from you. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Stephen West Hollywood says, yeah, big yes for me to keep doing it. I, I hope to keep working from home because I don't have to worry about traffic or about weather reports. I can sleep in later. That's Steve in West Hollywood. Uh, let's see. We got some other comments. Linda in Pasadena says, my husband's a banker. He's working from home and absolutely loves it. But for me, it's been an adjustment. When he's on calls or in a meeting, I go into my own little cave so I won't bother him. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. Angela writes, I'm a contractor for a space-related company. I was only there a week, barely got any training uh, when it was announced we'd be working from home. I prefer working from home, even though getting trained on the fly from afar has been rough. I find it much more comfortable and wear jeans and a tank top, much less distracting as we work in a big space with many cubicles. That's Angela. 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Doug posted on the AirTalk Facebook page, I'm a teacher, can't wait to get back to the school site. Too many variables in contact with students that weren't addressed as we had one day's notice we were moving to distance learning. Maybe in the fall, if we can set things up in a more organized manner, teaching from home might be more workable. One plus, no recess duty. I'll bet, Doug. <laughs> uh, that's that's got to be a positive. <clears throat> Max tweets at AirTalk, I would love to continue working from home. I save roughly two hours of my time each day between getting ready and commuting and can handle accounting tasks as needed. I apparently really don't need the social interaction as much as some folks and enjoy a quick bike ride for lunch. That's Max tweeting at AirTalk, 866-893-KPCC. We have another college professor joining us, Patrick in Costa Mesa. Patrick, where do you teach? I teach at Cal State Fullerton. Very good. And so has it been uh, challenging to adapt to online learning? Yeah, I just wanted to add in my experience from the previous professor was, has been completely different. And maybe it's just a difference in student population. It sounded like she was a uh, was teaching graduate students. But um, my undergraduate students have reported struggling mightily with this just in terms of, you know, keeping their uh, time management, and their emotions regulated and all that stuff. Um, and I told them to ask if they wanted to keep doing this or if they'd prefer to go back. And they almost overwhelmingly said they'd love to get back in person. And one thing I, I think the biggest challenge has been um, accessibility. A lot of students are accessing classes off of their phones um, or they're in homes with families who are also all logging into Zoom at the same time to get onto the synchronous meeting. So I've, I've found that in order to get all of my students access to the material, I've had to record all my lectures and do a synchronous meeting. And that's actually meant uh, a lot more time 
um, and, and more time away from doing research, for me at least. Yeah. Patrick, this is similar to what my son describes. He's a freshman just finishing up uh, this week uh, with his finals at Claremont McKenna College. And there the professors have had to record because you've got some students who are, you know, back in China or in India uh, who are, are there. And it's the middle of the night in China, for example, when classes would be live. Uh, some students uh, don't have access to internet that's reliable and it is a real challenge for students who have some of those other um, things that interrupt the process of doing online learning. Patrick, I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your thoughts on it Uh, and uh, Norma writes, my husband started working at home two jobs ago. He'll never go back. He works way more hours, I think, because he works at all weird hours when things bother him. (laughs) That's his stress relief, huh, Norma? All right. Uh, We have much more to come in the second hour where we ask those who are doing their jobs out with members of the public or co-workers how they're feeling about doing that work. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Hope your day's off to a good start, despite the rain in portions of Southern California. Coming up later this hour, our weekly politics update. We'll talk with our political analysts about what's going on with the congressional effort to try and help the economy in the wake of COVID-19 and the disastrous job losses that we've had across the United States. And speaking of jobs, last hour on Air Talk, we heard from those working at home, whether that's something they'd like to continue even after we're through the pandemic. My question for you at the start of this hour is, if you're someone going out into the world to work, maybe you're working in a warehouse or a factory and you're surrounded by other people, what sorts of safety precautions are being taken, whether it's masking, whether it's distancing or not? If you're working in a retail environment, how has that changed? And what are you called on to do differently than what you did before? Uh, Reading reports about you know, people working in supermarkets who've asked uh, individuals who weren't masking when they entered the store to leave only be punched in the face or uh, had, you know, uh, really horrible things uh, yelled at them and said to them, these are not things if you working at a supermarket you signed up for. But realistically, not every market has a security guard there to handle these sorts of things. And it's fallen on the managers or the line workers at retail establishments to attempt to enforce this, not just because it's the law, but an effort to protect other customers and to protect the staff members of the retail establishment. So I'd like to hear from you what your experiences have been uh, in dealing with the public where you felt there was an unsafe situation. How did you handle it? What sort of support did you get from your employer? 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Returning to AirTalk uh, just a few days after she was last with us, President and CEO of the California Retailers Association, Rachel Michelin. Rachel, good to have you with us again. 
great. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start with you to kind of get a sense among your members, and I know it's a huge organization, so this only be anecdotes, but your sense of uh, how they're dealing with this issue of enforcing physical distancing and face covering when, you know, not every business has a security guard to be the hammer. So, you know, it's challenging and it, and it really does put uh, sales associates in a position of law enforcement, which isn't their job. Um, we've, we've contacted, we've sent letters to all up to the governor's office, to uh, the league of cities, to supervisors, to the deputy sheriff, to the police chiefs association um, asking for help in working with us to find a solution because we want to protect our consumers, but we also want to protect our sales associates. And it's, it's tough. And we've had instances around the state where uh, sales associates have been put in harm's way, uh, where they have um, not been treated very respectfully. And, and, you know, we're all in this together, right? We all, if we follow the protocols, we're going to get out of this faster than if we don't. And our stores are trying to do their best. They've invested a lot of money in signage and putting things on the floor to remind people of social distancing. They're making announcements. We're really trying to follow all of the guidelines um, given to us by our local electeds and public health officers and also the state. And we really need uh, our, our consumers to respect that, to respect our sales associates, and then if a county or a city wants to enforce the facial coverings the mandates that they have passed, then they need to have their own law enforcement enforce it. That's their job. It is not the job of the sales associate to do it. No, uh, and, and that's understood. But you've got sales associates wanting to keep themselves and their coworkers safe and, and also uh, not put the customers who are following the rules at risk and it just it, it's such a difficult circumstance are are your member retail establishments having a difficult time at all coming up with protective equipment for staff members you know i think most of them you know depending on where they're at you know we're seeing in california parts of the state opening up faster than others I think that most of the larger national retailers have been pretty, they've been preparing and gathering um, protective equipment for a while. And I think we've been encouraging our smaller independent retailers to be preparing to open their doors. I think we're doing okay. Um, we're also working with the governor's office. Um, the governor's office is very focused on ensuring that particularly those folks who are working in different industries have uh, accessible to protective equipment. So we're working with them. So I think we're going to be doing okay when it comes to the protective gear, particularly as we see more and more of the state opening up. We're talking with Rachel Michelin. She's president and CEO of the California Retailers Association, which represents all aspects of retail. But our conversation isn't about just retail. It's it's for those of you that are going out into the world to work. And so maybe you're not interfacing with customers Um if you are, that's great. Like to hear what that's like. But maybe you're working in an environment where you're making deliveries. We just had a tow truck driver we just lost on the line, but he was going to talk about how different it is 
uh, driving a tow truck now. Maybe you work in a distribution center. 866-893-KPECC. Seth in Corona says, I'm a tow truck driver, and we have changed our process to follow safety procedures. We wear masks and gloves. But eventually, we decided to not provide rides to any of the customers. That's interesting, Seth, because I can't tell you how many times I've ridden with the tow truck driver when my car's broken down because uh, there's no one around to pick me up. So, you know, the drivers have been kind to let me ride along uh, to the mechanic's place. But at least the company that Seth works for in Corona, they're not doing that, and understandably so, to keep the drivers safe. 866-893-KPECC or the Air Talk page kpcc.org frank in ontario uh you work at a, a used car lot is that right that is correct yes. so how are you handling safety precautions at the lot so basically since april 1st uh, the new policy is is that anybody that comes into the facility has to be um wearing a mask sanitize their hands if they don't have uh, a mask themselves we will provide one for them and Aside from that, when they do decide to go on a test drive, we do require gloves, uh, the vehicle sanitized right after the test drive as well. So um, those are some of the minor procedures that we put in place as of right now. And how have customers responded to those requirements? So far, um, it's been a positive uh, input from the customers. Uh, we've had maybe... I think we just lost Frank on the connection. That's good to hear that there's a positive response from the customers uh, to doing that. Uh, and hopefully uh, people are buying buying cars. I certainly see a lot more traffic uh, on the um, freeways and on surface streets. And I have a sense that people are more reluctant to take ride-hailing uh, trips. So uh, this may be ultimately be a boost to cars. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Mike in Silver Lake. Uh, I understand you, you sell real estate. Um, so as an agent, what do you do to protect yourself if you're showing property? Hi, Larry. Yeah, we have a strict uh, mandate for masks and gloves, and I also carry uh, sanitizing wipes with me and wipe down every single lockbox, key, doorknob, light switch, et cetera, et cetera. So it's trying, um, you know, just not to touch everything, my face with my mask on, especially. And um, it's a little concerning being out because we see so many that are not adhering to the mandate of masks. Now, are, are are people coming out and looking at properties now? You know, it's been unbelievably busy. Really? I yeah. For the first maybe three weeks of the lockdown, it was it was just silence, and then everybody slowly started to come out of the woodwork. And you know, I I work uh, as a realtor in Silver Lake here very hard, and I've, I'm always sort of building my clientele and, and following up my clientele but I did so for the pandemic reasons just to check in as, as a friend you know and that just in turn led to hey we're actually interested in seeing this house and I was just mobbed by my whole base of clientele and it's been non-stop everyday showings I'm, I'm actually wow. on the way out the door so, <laughs> all right well, I won't keep you up but I did have a, a question you know with the virtual tours that are available for people to see property has has that cut down then during this time on sort of people just you know doing looky loose stuff so that the people that are going to actually look on site at the house 
are more serious? One hundred and one hundred and ten percent yes to that. It's it's definitely taken the looky lose away. And yes, we know that if people are calling and they want a tour, they're very, very, very serious buyers. And with that, in regards to the pandemic, it's definitely taken a lot of uh, of the activity out of the market because people are afraid to sell. So with the inventory scarcity and the in, the uh, interest rates being as low as they are, we're seeing just overbidding uh, uh, on a vast scale in the, the hotter neighborhoods like Silver Lake, Echo Park, yeah, Island Park. Yeah, places that are close in, which I was also wondering about because more people working from home would maybe people, um, the idea of moving closer to the core of the city be less appealing to people? But it sounds like at least with the with the um, lower inventory, that hasn't been the case. Mike, anybody push back on the safety precautions or your customers, uh, your clients cool with that? Oh, no, they're 100 percent cool with it. And we have a form that uh, we have to legally have them sign for each and every showing that basically outlines the precautions that they have to adhere to. And I ensure that they all do. Otherwise, I will not actually show the property. All right, Mike, we'll let you go because you got, I know, a client waiting. Thank you so much. Mike in Silver Lake giving a great description of what real estate agents are facing. And nice to hear that business for him is doing so well, even in this difficult time. 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. I'd like to hear from you if you're out doing work with the public what you've been experiencing with people adhering to safety protocols. Uh, Have you found yourself in an uncomfortable circumstance because people didn't want to follow and you had to be the enforcer? And what was the result of that? What sort of support are you getting or not getting from your employer to stay safer while you're doing your job? And that, again, applies not just to AirTalk listeners who are working with customers or clients, but those of you that are working in a workplace that's essential. You're at a factory that still has to make stuff. You're at a distribution center that has to move goods out. You're driving uh, a delivery truck that has to make the deliveries, and yet you're trying to protect yourself from COVID-19. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Rachel Michelin, President and CEO of the California Retailers Association. Are you hearing much anecdotally from your members about um, customers behaving uh, unacceptably and and um, making things difficult for owners and employees of businesses? We have. Uh, we've heard from a couple of them that uh, folks are coming in uh, in areas where there is a face covering mandate and the consumer doesn't want to wear the face covering. Um, they get a little frustrated when they had to wait in line in order to get into a store because we had to set stay within the limits of, of what the establishment could hold, 50% of fire code. Um, so we have heard some. I think for the most part, though, most consumers are understand that they need to follow these protocols. The protocols are there to protect both them and the sales associates at the stores. Uh, and I'm hoping that as we see more and more retail opening up in California, you know, our consumers will be respectful that, you know, we're following the guidelines coming out from the state and local governments. 
um, and we're asking them to do the same so that we can quickly continue and get to a place where it's a little bit more normal than it, what it has been the last few weeks. Now, just thinking it would be good to hear from people who are driving taxis or for ride-hailing companies, if you're still able to pick up uh, passengers, um, are you getting adherence to people wearing their masks, maybe talking less, um, uh, cleaning down your car to make sure uh, that you and your your uh, successive passengers aren't at higher risk, 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Rachel, we talked a bit about this last week when you were on about um, the uh, curbside delivery and, and contactless uh, exchange of goods. And is is that something that most of your members who can go to that model have been able to do so when it's working well, or are they running into some limitations from that? So there are some challenges. So I think every retailer that can do it is trying to do it. Um, There's some limitations. You have to have a curb. So if you are a store within a mall, as an example, that doesn't necessarily have access to a curb, you may not be able to do it. It depends on whether or not the the mall is going to be working with you on that. Um, There's some challenges, too. You do have to have the infrastructure in place. So what we're finding is particularly some of our more independent retailers, our smaller retailers, it's a little bit more challenging to do curbside because they may not have the infrastructure of a website, of being able to take payment on their website. You know, maybe they don't even have the the staff right now to run these orders and run them out to the curb. Um, So I think it's a really good first step. Um, you know, but I think that we're really not going to see the impact of retail until we see retail stores being brick and mortar stores being able to open, which we're hoping will happen sooner uh, rather than later, particularly because we've already seen retail being open with some of our other retailers that that were able to stay open through the course of the last eight weeks. We've learned a lot from them. We've we put together really great best practices. And so while we're appreciative of the opportunity of curbside, uh, we really need to to move a little bit further in allowing folks to actually walk into the stores. All right. Rachel Michelin, the president and CEO of the California Retails Association. Uh, We're going to continue hearing from listeners who are out in the world doing essential work. Natalie, for example, is a caregiver. We're going to talk with her about how she attempts to keep herself safer from COVID-19. I'd like to hear from you, regardless of the kind of work that you do. If it takes you out into the world, do you feel as though that your employer has been able to provide a, a safe enough environment? If not, what's missing? What about your interactions with clients and customers, or in the case of Natalie, with patients? Uh, has that been able to work out okay? 866 866- 893-KPECC. We'll be back in just one minute. Governor Gavin Newsom holds a news conference at noon today. We'll be bringing it to you live right here on 89.3 KPECC. It's right after Air Talk at noon. Last hour, we talked with those working at home about whether that's something they'd like to continue even after the pandemic uh, flows through uh, or if they can't wait to get back to the office. This hour, we're talking with those 
Uh, we don't have the luxury of working from home. We're working in retail, uh, driving, working in factories, distribution centers, at the airport, law enforcement, uh, healthcare profession, you name it, 866-893-KPCC. Natalie in Thousand Oaks, uh, I understand that you are uh, a medical caregiver. Do you go to, to multiple homes to work with your patients? I do. So we provide in-home care for those that are not able to leave their homes. Uh, We do go into facilities as well. Uh, I currently take care of a few clients in their homes specifically. All right. So what kinds of of procedures are you following and are you able to get all of your patients on board with them? So we are supposed to wear a mask at all times when in a client's home. Uh, which is kind of difficult because a lot of them do have hearing issues considering they're over the age of 75 generally. And uh, we're supposed to be washing our hands, wearing gloves if they're provided by the client or by the home health or hospice. And um, that doesn't mean that they're always there, and that's very difficult. Uh, hand sanitizer, we hope that it's there, but it's, again, it doesn't always mean it's going to be there. So you, do you have to carry a lot of this stuff with you? I do. Uh, Personally, I'm a nursing student as well. So I myself have a lot of that stuff on hand for myself. Yeah. But um, a lot of the girls that go into these homes do not. And so I've been giving some to the other girls that I run into because we're not able to find it. Um, I got lucky enough to have people in the community that were retired nurses that had some um, because even the home health and hospices in the area have been having a hard time getting the provided gloves from their manufacturers. Wow. Natalie, have you had any COVID-19 patients? We have not, thankfully. Um, We had some suspected cases, but we have been very lucky and fortunate to not have run into any clients or caregivers with any COVID-19. All right. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations on working through your nursing program and and uh, being a, a certified uh, nurse at the end of all that, and as well as the important work that you're doing providing care for people in their homes. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Mark and Sherman Oak says... I witnessed some confrontations in grocery stores, including at a Gelson's in Sherman Oaks. A Gelson's of all place? Uh, Such a refined place. I'm shocked to hear that, Mark. Said uh, a customer without a mask had a total meltdown. I felt so bad for the staff. There was no security. So I interjected myself. I told her, mask it or casket. Uh, that's Mark in Sherman Oaks. If even Gelson's isn't safe, what have we come to? 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Glenn in Inglewood, good to have you with us. Uh, I understand you work for a home builder? Yes, we we build high-end custom homes in the South Bay area. And uh, it, it just shows that it, it falls on, on the higher-ups to keep the employees protected. My boss has been great about that. We do a, a sterabine spray, which is a strong chemical, uh, every couple of hours on our sites. We've limited the number of subcontractors that we have out. We keep uh, a supply of, of masks and gloves and alcohol-based sanitizer on site, which has been really great. It makes me feel a lot more comfortable working out in the field. Has there been any problem with some of the subs when they come to the site, you know, not 
following the procedures, or is everybody consistently on board? Um, earlier on it was, but everybody's gotten on board because we actually have all of our subcontractors sign a, uh, uh, a protocol form just letting them know, like, hey, you guys have to wear a mask, you have to wear gloves, and keep a six-foot distance away from each other when possible. In construction, you have to be close sometimes, but right now we, we've been really great about that at keeping everybody safe. All right, that's good to hear. Now, uh, I don't know if you have any other friends who are in the business, work for other home builders. Have, have you heard any stories of concern uh, at all? I, absolutely. I actually, uh, my father's a general contractor as well, and um a lot of a lot of our subs at that company, it, we've had a, a harder time to to get them on board to you know keep themselves and other employees protected. Um, we've actually had somebody who who had gotten really sick and they had the symptoms of COVID nineteen, but we're not sure if they've been tested because we haven't been in contact with them in about three weeks. So. You know, it, it, there are some situations where people are not staying as protected as, as they should be. All right, Glenn, thank you. Really appreciate your talking about what it's like in the job side. He works for high-end custom home builder in Inglewood. Let's stick around, Inglewood, uh, city of my youth. Richard, good to have you with us. I understand you're an Uber Eats driver. Yes, I am. So what do you see with with the restaurant personnel and with your customers? Okay, I work pretty much all delivery services, so Grubhub, DoorDash, all that. Okay. And what I'm noticing is when I about 80% of these restaurants, they have no sense of direction, meaning they have curbside uh, customers pulling up as well as us uh, delivery drivers. And there's only one door, you could say, pretty much per, per restaurant that has um, access to a, a, a recipient there. And... They, everybody's pretty much bottlenecking at the door. And there's some customers pulling up with no mask, obviously. And um, so I pull up to some of these restaurants and I'm already accepted the delivery. And when I pull up to this restaurant, if there's so much of a bottlenecking happening at that door, I will end up canceling it. Really? So you just cancel it? So what happens with the customer then? Does... The customer just get a notice of cancellation, or does another driver come pick it up? No, actually, they'll send it off to another Uber driver. But therefore, the time that I spent driving to the location and actually maybe parking and getting up and noticing the problem, that whole time has been wasted on my end as well as the customer's end. So wow. then they have to find another Uber driver to replace me, find that guy to get there, and at that point, either if the food is already prepared and done then that food is going to be sitting there for a couple more minutes waiting, getting colder, which I hate to do, which I pretty much try not to do ever. But if there's an issue, issue like that, which I do see pretty much a lot of times, yeah, it just you want to keep yourself safe. I understand. Richard, when you look at these restaurants, and maybe you can't tell from the approach that you make to the restaurant, but does it appear there would be a better way for them to organize? Is this just a lack of organizational skill at the restaurant? Or is it just the physical layout of the restaurant? There's a choke point and there's no way to work around it. No, Larry, no, not at all. They could totally avoid this completely. I myself personally, I'm an outspoken person. And since I've been doing this for a while and I've noticed this problem since day one of this quarantine, um, I actually speak up. And I try to talk to the manager. I, I asked the, the attendant I'm talking to the manager 
because this is completely unorganized. People are asking each other, are you next? Are you next? No, no, I've been helped already. Thank you. And I, I, and I tell them, can you do this more organized? And they look at me, honestly, kind of what that look like. Just get your food and go. And I'm <laughs> like, yes. And I'm kind of like, well, this is like a big thing. Wouldn't you think that, especially what your yeah. business is right now, so slow for you all, I would think you would want to do as much as you can to make people feel more, you know? Yeah. No, it's not. Yeah, Richard, I yeah, I appreciate it. And the fact you're outspoken is great for a, a call on a talk show. I appreciate it very much. That's Richard in Inglewood, who, as he said, drives for multiple food delivery uh, companies. Uh, and Rachel Michelin, thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it very much and talking about the challenges that your members of the California Retailers Association deals with. We'll look forward to talking with you again in the future. Thank you, Rachel. Great. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Rachel Michelin, California Retailers Association President and CEO. It's Air Talk on KPCC 89.3 on radio. Tell your smart speaker to play KPCC or listen on the KPCC app. Well, it's time for our weekly update on politics, and we're so pleased to have with us two analysts to talk about the biggest developments of the past week or so. Uh, joining us first from Pepperdine University, where he's dean of the uh, School of Public Policy, also senior fellow at Pepperdine's Davenport Institute, uh, Pete Peterson. Dean Peterson, good to have you with us again. Great to be back with you, Larry. Appreciate it. And also joining us, Director of Civic Engagement and Lecturer in Political Science at the University of Texas, Victoria DeFrancesco. Thank you so much, uh, DeFrancesco Soto, excuse me. Thank you for being with us again. Greetings from Texas. All right. Very good. Uh, well, let's start with um, one of the things I find fascinating in the whole approach to uh, complying with the stay-at-home order is what appears to be a growing ideological presence among those who continue to comply and those who are um, skeptical of the public health order to stay at home. And it does seem that there is a bit of the individualism versus um, collective approach uh, to dealing with this. And Pete Peterson, I wonder if you can speak to this. How much of this do you think is a political ideology coming into play? Well, Larry, I certainly think it's it's a factor. I I think more is being made of it than is necessary. I I certainly am seeing in some of the news coverage on a state-by-state basis that two states that are actually reacting very similarly to their opening up policies, like a Colorado, which is a purplish blue state and a Florida, uh, which is uh, more of a red state, um, are being viewed in different ways. And so in in some instances, we're seeing states reacting in similar ways, but being treated differently. But your point that you raise about kind of this individual versus collective, I, I think is also um, a fair criticism, but I wouldn't put it in in those terms. I would put it more individual uh, versus uh, more of a top-down or, or a government-led approach to this. But I still think in most cases, people are reacting out of their own, what Tocqueville would call self-interest rightly understood. 
that that many are suffering really dire situations economically due to this. And I think many are protesting that as well. All right. Uh, Professor DeFrancesco Soto, um, your thoughts on how much ideology plays into the differing response to these public health directives? So I think there is the the, the base ideological difference. But I what I want to shine the spotlight on is um, how different political leaders and also how the media has framed this as an ideological or partisan divide. So whereas maybe Republicans tend to have one view of the quarantine as opposed to Democrats, I think that those differences in liberty versus uh, being protected for, for health purposes is being amplified by division. So I think um, what maybe was a more subtle difference has been, I fear, blown out of proportion. Um, the other point I wanted to make is, is the interesting difference among the states. Um, very different approaches, not just among the states, but also in the localities. So I think that there's also this very interesting aspect of the regional flavor of the small localities versus the big cities that we're seeing important differences as well as we approach the uh, the quarantine to the coronavirus. All right, we'll continue with our analyst, Victoria DeFrancesco Soto of the University of Texas, Pete Peterson of Pepperdine University, right here in Southern California. We're talking politics as we do every Monday on Air Talk. Much to talk about, including the $3 trillion Heroes Act that passed the House of Representatives, but isn't going to get much of a hearing in the Senate. We'll talk about a potential compromise what could pass both houses and go on to President Trump to provide additional economic relief to so much of the country that's suffering? 866-893-5722. We'll be back in just one minute. I can guarantee when I say something tongue-in-cheek that I will hear from listeners who don't understand it was a humorous comment. My comment about Gelson's, for those of you who didn't understand, that was a tongue-in-cheek comment. All right. (laughs) 866-893-KPECC if you want to weigh in on the issue that I raised with our political analysts, and that is whether we're seeing an ideological difference that's at play that's a a fairly deep-rooted political difference um, between those who are very trusting of public health officials and uh, very compliant with government uh, public health dictates versus those who are skeptical of it. Uh, who believe that their circumstance is very different than what's described by the government official and um, doesn't want to to comply with that directive is part of that rooted in in an inherently different worldview. 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org, with us, Pete Peterson of Pepperdine University and Victoria DeFrancesco Soto of the University of Texas. Um, Pete, I want to, I want to continue along this line because... 
I do think that this plays also into the more rural versus urban areas, their perceptions of government, rural people believing that, you know, generally um, governmental authorities outside of their home community don't understand the circumstances under which they live. So this kind of plays into, for me, I think, a larger divide in the country um, between urbanites and non-urbanites. I think that that could be fair. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at my bookcase here and see Bill Bishop's great book, The Big Sort, which he wrote uh, a number of years ago in which he makes the argument that that we as, as American citizens uh, choose where we live based on a number of of uh, things that are important to us, but one of them being uh, our political affiliation and leaning. And in some ways, we're seeing the big sort play out in the way that uh, various regulations and restrictions are being responded to. But I think the other factor, uh, I do agree with with Dr. Soto that some of this is being made uh, too much out of, too in too much of a polarizing way, by the media, but I do think there is something to how these different regions, as well as the urban-rural divide, are just being impacted in different ways by this. And when states, or the nation, but certainly states, are taking some of these broad-brushed responses to uh, these restrictions, they are they are being felt in very different ways. And those living in the rural areas, which frankly have not been impacted uh, to the same level that our cities have been, uh, I think in some ways it's only natural that you would see a negative reaction. Even just look at the county level, like in L.A. County. I mean, we have very rural areas of L.A. County, but obviously we have a dominant city in the middle of it. And we are seeing that the rural versus urban areas are being impacted differently, even though the policies being put forth are are meant to uh, apply to both areas. Pete Peterson of Pepperdine with us, Victoria De Francesco Soto with us from the University of Texas. Uh, Victoria, let, let's talk about the three trillion dollar Heroes Act, um, which is an additional round of funding uh, passed the House of Representatives, but the Republican majority of the Senate um, that they're not interested in in. Uh, sending the amount of money here to the states that is called for in the HEROES Act, as well as some other funding. What do you think are the prospects for some sort of a compromise um, funding measure to pass both houses? I'm usually an optimist by nature, Larry, but I don't think there's going to be much of a compromise on on this bill. And, And it goes back to kind of political science 101, which is the electoral connection where we know that Republican senators um, look at the numbers, look at where the public opinion is for their voters in their respective states, and that we know that there is an important difference in how Republicans and Democrats look at the severity of the coronavirus and, you know, kind of the entirety of this crisis. So I think that when they look at this, data and they see that their supporters, their base is not as supportive or is not as as fearful as, say, other Democratic voters are, and they still want to make good on their promise of fiscal um, austerity, of, you know, making sure that they don't 
overspend money that has already been overspent because of this crisis, I think that they are going to try to hold on to that stance for as long as they can because they read the same polls that all of us do. So there's a very long answer to I'm not very optimistic about <laughs> right. the bill's chances in the Senate. Pete, what do you think? I'm afraid I I agree with Dr. Soto. You know, there's a there's a negotiation 101, which says that you ask for way more than you than you know you'll get. But you can you can overplay your hand by asking for too much. And I and I do think when you look at the vote totals of the CARES Act versus the HEROES Act, I mean, they are dramatically different. I mean, the the HEROES Act was was only passed by by nine votes. And you had 14 Democrats actually uh, voting against the HEROES Act. So uh, I am not I'm not overly optimistic, but I would say this. I, I, I would think and I certainly maybe run contrary to most people on my side of the aisle. I think we're going to see a number of cities going bankrupt in uh, the months ahead and while an argument might be made that you don't want to support profligate states, uh, that certainly is a Republican argument. Um, when you get down to the city level, you are you are looking at a different set of factors. And I hope Republicans as well as Democrats can be thinking of ways to support cities that are uh, have lost dramatic levels of revenue uh, due to the pandemic and the shutdown orders, um, and to think differently about cities maybe than they do about states. But even with states, you know, the May budget revision that Governor Newsom put out last week, yep. um, you know, really is an effort in part at least to put pressure on the federal government uh, to avoid the kinds of very deep cuts that are contemplated there. Do you anticipate that going anywhere, Pete? Again, I, I, I'm not I'm not optimistic, but I certainly do. I mean, a $50 billion anticipated drop in California revenues is, is what uh, Governor Newsom put forth this past week. Um, and I do think that there needs to be shown and demonstrated an earnest attempt by states to go through the necessary fiscal belt tightening that that will be necessary here. At the same time, I think when you get to the city level, um, and, and certainly even among some of the states, uh, you are looking at decisions that are of a scale and scope uh, that are going to need at least some federal support. Victoria, do you think that helping cities might be more appealing than states for for Congress? Well, I think for the House, it it definitely is. And we saw that reflected in the bill for the Senate. I mean, I, I hate to keep going back to partisan politics, but it is a very useful lens here. We know that um, the, the more densely populated urban areas or large cities tend to be Democratic strongholds. So I think, again, when senators are making that calculus about where is my support base, you know, for especially for those who are going to be coming up for reelection, you know, these big cities aren't, uh, you know, it, it, it front of mind for them. Um, the one thing I did also want to point out, though, is that interestingly enough, even among Republicans, there is a little bit of a, a difference in thought in terms of how much flexibility 
to give to the states and the localities as opposed to having a more centralized strategy. So I find that interesting as well. So it's not just the partisan divide, but even an outlook divide within the Republican Party, which I think makes it even less likely that there will be agreement across the aisle. Coming up, we'll hear what our analysts think of President Obama and his criticism of political leaders over their response to COVID-19. We'll talk about um, Joe Biden's strategy as the presumptive Democratic nominee when I can't hold rallies, of course, with COVID-19, and also the themes that uh, he seems to be trying out as a part of his campaign. We'll be back in just one minute on Air Talk. More than anything, this pandemic has fully finally torn back the curtain on the idea that so many of the folks in charge know what they're doing. A lot of them aren't even pretending to be in charge. If the world's going to get better, it's going to be up to you. That's Barack Obama, the former president, uh, with his criticism during a virtual commencement ceremony for historically black colleges and universities. Uh, His uh, comments were presented on Saturday. Uh, Pete Peterson, dean of Pepperdine's School of Public Policy, Victoria DeFrancesco Soto, assistant dean of civic engagement, LBJ School of Public Affairs, University of Texas, where she's also lecturer in political science. Victoria, your thoughts about the pointed comments of President Obama? So as my students would say, Larry, President Obama was throwing mad shade at (laughs) Trump. Uh, It was a a not so veiled message there, but essentially airing the frustrations um, that Democrats have had over the last couple of years in terms of both what they perceive of as greed as not a draining of the swamp, but an extending of the swamp. And and that was elaborated a little bit more in the evening, in the general commencement speech that was given later that evening. And the other point being that, you know, this frustration of wanting a more centralized approach. So back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, where Democrats want a little bit more of a consolidated approach, of a, of a public health-centered approach, whereas Republicans may want more of a diffuse local level one. And that frustration came, a, came out also from President Obama's evening address. So I think um, not so veiled airing of frustration. It, and uh, Victoria, is it is it the start of him campaigning for Joe Biden? Was, was, is, does it belong in that context? I, yes, I, I, I do think so. I mean, you, you can see um, President Obama, you know, starting to make a couple of more tweets. He was pretty much absent for the first couple of years, but you can see slowly but surely he's starting to come out into the public more, at least virtually, uh, into the virtual public. Um, he was very clear about not wanting to get involved in the Democratic primary and let Sanders and, and Biden in the final stretch kind of fight it out and didn't get involved before. But now that Biden is the presumptive nominee, I think that we're going to be seeing much more Barack Obama and perhaps even more so of Michelle Obama, who is also tremendously popular with the Democratic Party. Uh, Pete Peterson, your thoughts on the president's comments and the extent to which he'll benefit the Biden campaign? Well, I think he can only benefit the Biden campaign as it relates to the comments 
it's it's difficult to tell. When I first heard those comments, I thought, is he talking about Governor Cuomo? Uh, is he talking about some of gov- of the governors who have made? Is he talking about the leaders of the CDC or the FDA? Um, you know, there uh, there have been a number of investigative reports done on how the various states, as well as the federal government itself, and by that really I'm talking more of the federal agencies, have not acquitted themselves well in the response to this crisis. And so when I hear the desire for more uh, centralized policymaking, I think we also need to at least think through what did happen at places like the CDC and and FDA and what is continuing to happen there. At the same time, understand that the United States has been doing an increasingly good job around testing. Um, You know, we we are leading the world even when uh, population is taken into account with a number of tests. We're at about 12 million tests now, uh, confirmed cases uh, to fatality rates. We are half as a percentage versus most of the rest of the world, except for Germany. Um, so there, I, again, I thought testing per capita, we were still behind South Korea and other countries, albeit they're much smaller countries, but I thought we still lagged in the per capita test rate. Well, when you add up um, the next, I guess, eight or 10 largest com- countries in the world, uh, we are at about their same uh, number of of total tests. So on a country-to-country basis, we may fall behind what a particular country is doing on tests. But when, when you look at total number of tests with our population versus a comparable number of countries and their populations, it's the United States looks very good. When, when I was hearing um, President Obama's comments, I took it as referring to Trump because he's talking essentially to Democrats and I think Democrats, the critique of, of the government over COVID-19 response immediately goes to President Trump. And that's that's rhetorically where that responsibility has been placed since the beginning of COVID-19. So did you think there was any doubt that that's that he was talking about Trump? Well, he was talking to high school students, I thought. <laughs> I didn't think he was talking to Democrats. Uh, he may have been channeling the Democrats. Um, but if if that I, I'm sure. He- yeah, he was talking to college students at historically black colleges and universities. So I, 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 I thought that the message was aimed at Democrats, that that's what he was talking about. I, you know what? I'm, I'm sure that's where the broadside was intended. Uh, but at the same time, I think, you know, the, the broader message, if we're to take that public leaders have failed in this instance, uh, there is a, a long line of people to be uh, exploring and uh, investigating on that note. I uh, also wanted to talk about the strategy employed by Joe Biden in his campaign. As there's been a fair amount of coverage of him looking and trying out the theme of really pushing on economic inequality as an effort to align himself with Bernie Sanders' positions that he took during the primary. And Victoria, do you do you think that moving in that sort of direction, highlighting economic inequality, uh, moving toward a progressive side, does that help him boost turnout on the Democratic side in November, or does it cost him 
by actually uh, having more of middle America um, concerned that he would be too far left. Uh, He's stuck between a rock and a hard place on that one, Larry. But I think that given the change in circumstance in just the past couple of weeks, uh, if he does it cautiously, I think it could help him. I just, you know, I can't get the fact that we're at 18% unemployment and among communities of color even more so. This is something that's going to really resonate with a lot of the Democratic base. All right. I want to thank you both so much for sharing your analysis and expertise. That's Victoria DeFrancesco Soto, Assistant Dean of Civic Engagement at University of Texas LBJ School of Public Affairs. She also lectures at UT in political science. And Pete Peterson from right here in Southern California, Pepperdine's Dean of the School of Public Policy and Senior Fellow at Pepperdine's Davenport Institute. Stay tuned. Governor Gavin Newsom comes up next with his news conference, the very latest on COVID-19 efforts here in California. Then once the governor is done, time permitting, you'll join Fresh Air with Terry Gross already in progress. I'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 10 here on 89.3 and the KPCC app.